Episode 9 of Up From The Ashes, Bad Sci-Fi TV, Big Sci-Fi Ideas, our topic today, The Star Lost Episode 8, Circuit of Death. First aired on CTV, November 9th, 1973, 50 years ago today, if you're listening to it the day we released it, starring The Usual Suspects and guest starring Percy Rodriguez, Noreen Virgin, and Calvin Butler, written by Norman Klenman and directed by Peter Levin. And my special guest host today is Dave Goulet. Hello and welcome back to Up From The Ashes, a podcast that takes a look at an old sci-fi TV show that's been scorched in the past and lifting it up, up from the ashes to ask the question, does it deserve to be more than a historical footnote on internet blog think pieces? Does it deserve a better reputation than being an anecdote from Harlan Ellison's cranky stories? Or does it deserve to be taken seriously in the pantheon of sci-fi television Well, we are taking a few months to record 16 plus episodes to discuss it. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, author of the sci-fi novel Ghosts of the Future. And today I'm here with an old friend, Dave Goulet. Dave, hello and welcome. Glad to be here, Ben. It's a pleasure. So uh, Dave and I go way back, I mean, 20 some years ago when we were in a writing program together for screenwriting. And you're the second I believe second guest host that I've had that I've shared a theater experience watching a Godzilla movie with. Oh, uh, yes. Were you part of that group that went and saw Godzilla 2000 I, with I me? I believe so. Yes. Wow. That's bringing up memories. I think that was week one of our writing program. And that was one of those times when Tony and Brian and, and you and I, and maybe a couple other people, but because uh, we were the guys who sat in the back corner. Yeah. Made snarky comments to each other. <laughs> Geek squad. While still learning. Yeah. Yeah. So you are a screenwriter and you also work in um, is a nonprofit sector. Is that what you said you're doing? Yeah. That's the, so, the bringing home the, yeah. the bacon job. Yeah. But we've also crossed paths over the years uh, talking about different comic book projects mm-hmm. and things and, and sharing things with each other. and But also... You are, have the distinction of being the first actual Canadian Woo-hoo. to be on the, the podcast. Oh, Canada. <laughs> As I've said before, I lived in Canada, but I did not uh, live there long enough to be naturalized. I was born in the States. So here we have a, an actual, actual Canadian who actually also watched the Star Lost. I'm assuming you had a chance to watch this when it was on TV in reruns. Yes. I don't know. You're not old enough to have watched it when it first aired, right? Uh, I... I don't know if we if we had TV then. I'm <laughs> at our place. <laughs> I might be old enough, but I, I did catch it in reruns. Yeah, for sure. I'm assuming that some of your experiences is, is going to be similar to mine. Then you saw it back then, and then later on, now, whenever you know it would come up, it'd be like, oh yeah, I remember that. Or what was that show that I watched that one time? Yeah. Like, what do you remember then from 1979 or 1978-ish around in there? What do you remember of the this show? I remember the, the disappointment would be the word because <laughs> it came out, right? Like just after Star Wars, when they tried to capitalize on, on the show and the popularity of Star Wars. And I had, I had watched Star Trek back in the day. Like we had three channels back then. I don't know about where you were, but we had CTV, CBC, and Global came out just a little later. So there wasn't a lot of content out there. And so you go and see a movie like Star Wars, and at that age, it blows you away, right? It's it, like it, it was generational. 
And so along comes this, you know, you're looking for stuff on TV. What did we have back then besides, you know, we had cartoons, we had Rocket Robin Hood. That's probably the only other, you know, thing we had. Uh, well, for me, we had Battle of the Planets. Was Battle it? of the Planets. Yep. That, that and, came around uh, grade school. And, yeah. uh, and Battlestar Galactica yep. and, and Buck Rogers. Yep. Those were on TV Saturday afternoons for us. Um, it was primetime TV in the States, but it was, yes. I remember watching it. I, I remember watching Battlestar when it came out. Uh, it was on Saturday nights. So it was in the evenings on Saturday night. So, you know, when we, when Star Lost, they started showing, I think the previews for it. I was like, wow, great. Something else to watch. And it's Canadian, right? Like that was just amazing. And then I started watching the episodes um, I think they were Saturday afternoon or something like that. And I was just like, what is this? This is nothing like <laughs> Star Wars. And and the, I think we mentioned this uh, when we were chatting earlier about the, we thought this was made after Star Wars. So when you saw Garth running around with a crossbow, you're like, oh, they, they stole that off Star Wars. That's, that's Chewbacca's uh-huh. thing, right? It was totally coincidental. Um, that that was his weapon, I think. But it was like, you just had this, it was expectation as a, maybe I was 11 at the time, this expectation that this was going to be another type of Star Wars project, or at least Star Trek, lots of action, lots of aliens, lots of really cool stuff. And then it came on and it's, first of all, the, the effects, and because it's videotape, not filmed, it just didn't look like what you were used to seeing. It looked like I had seen, I think uh, maybe a couple of episodes of Dr. Who at that point, the Tom Baker era on, because sometimes if you turned your rotor on your antenna, you could pick up PBS from Watertown and you could catch these, (laughs) you could catch an episode of Dr. Who and even Dr. Who, I wanted so bad to like it because I would be reading magazines like famous monsters or Starlog and things like that. and, And they would have articles about Dr. Who. And when I would watch Doctor Who, I, I didn't really like it because it was videotaped and it just, it didn't look real to me. It looked like a stage production. And this is what Star Lost looked like. It looked like a stage production. Oh, yeah. And the closest thing I would say it reminded me of at the time was SCTV, Second City. The early years of Second City <laughs> were, they, for all I know, they were shot in that same studio, right? Like the lighting, the, the sets. And and so as a you know as a kid I was like this is a joke right and it it didn't look real and I just I I, I probably watched more episodes now than I realized because as I've watched uh, the eight episodes up to this one I'm I'm remembering like I'm getting oh yes I've seen this one yes I I remember this scene or something and so I did probably because what else were you going to watch back then it was this or nothing sometimes right right but it, the content as well the storytelling was a little bit above like fanboy 11 year old audience right star trek had a great balance of sometimes very Mm -hmm. mature concepts but you know fanboy action and fun stuff and this one i think it wants to but it doesn't have the budget for it so it's really leaning on a lot of the the themes and and the heavier the the writing that it's trying to go to now the other the other series that came out around this exact same time was Space 1999, uh, for me anyway. And the the funny thing is, I was almost as disappointed in Space 1999, which has tremendous production value, as Star Lost. 
because it just the stories were too cerebral for me at that age. Um, there wasn't enough action, I, I, and I would always be comparing it, both of these series, let's say, to Star Trek and Star Wars. And I think it's a fair comparison because Star Lost itself, you can tell riffs so much from Star Trek, right? Like so many of the tropes, it's like the, right, we have right. we have to have a Methuselah episode, we have to have a <laughs> you know an alien episode, and so if you're going to do that, then it's fair to compare them. But yeah, disappointment. Now that being said, watching it again now as an adult. A gray beard. Um, I don't. I'm not. I'm not as disappointed. Right. It's all about managing expectations. I thought I was going to look at it and and say, "Oh, this was real crap," but it's not. Um, there's elements of it. Uh, you guys have talked about this. Other other guest hosts. Like for for every lump of coal that you're seeing, there is a diamond in the rough. In just just about every episode, and it's that diamond in the rough that kind of gets you, and it's like, wow. There was there was something here. I think I think what went wrong in, in the bigger picture. If you look at Star Trek, the original series, one thing that they did was th- when they wrote things, they looked at what resources do we have for the show that we can build a story around. And they had tons of fantastic sets down there, right? So they could do a Western theme, you know, a 1930s, the piece of the action, um, the, the Nazi one. They had those sets to work with, and they said, "Well, let's utilize it. And we'll just say it's a different world, right?" right? So, right. so they 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 kind of got their story ideas based on what they knew they could execute. Um, whereas with Star Lost, it seems to be, no, we have the story. We just have to figure out a way to execute it. And <laughs> they had, like you've seen in all eight episodes, like they just didn't have the the facilities. They the soundstage isn't much bigger than it like Costco is bigger than these places right like they don't have any it's so small and cramped the best i think the best use of the space thus far have been the oro uh, alien oro episode where they have an actual you know bay where they've put the model mm-hmm. you know they've built the the spaceship and you actually get a sense of that there was room there uh there's a little bit in in this one but most of the episodes are so claustrophobic because like I said, it's like SCTV. Now, there there are two things that Canada, because of resources, has often done very well, which is comedy and horror. And that's because you can execute comedy and you can execute horror um, on low budget and still be effective. Science fiction is very difficult. Like, you have to be extremely resourceful and creative to make it work. And and as as you guys have said over the podcasts, it's its grasp exceeded its reach or vice versa. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just it couldn't execute it. One of the things you, you talk about that cramped, uh, the cramped space that they had to film in. And I've actually seen a picture of the, the floor plan of their, their uh, shooting studio. I can't find it anywhere, but it was just like, so, so cramped and like the different spaces that they had that they would like do the different set decorations and, uh, you know, they built a bridge set, but they didn't use that for this episode. <laughs> and they, uh, but it was meant it, it looked much bigger because it was a miniature, and they were doing the green screen for for that, which wouldn't have worked well with this. But one horror movie that I remember watching, this is a sci fi movie as well, 
where they really, really used, well, the idea of we don't have much space to film in is Cube, yes, which is a Canadian production. Yeah. They had these tiny cubes yeah. that were all like laid out next to each other. And so every single scene, as they move from one location to the next, they're just using a cube. Yeah. <laughs> and they just use that same set with a slightly different dressing, you know, and it's like the ultimate best example of a bottle episode of something where we have limited budget. And so on a TV show, a bottle episode is like, we're just gonna use the existing sets and save some money for some later on things. But for cube, they only needed one cube. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, Canadian horror. Well, that was, it has a sci-fi element, but it's definitely all about the murders and the death and the, who is going to die next in in there. And I, I read somewhere and I don't remember where, but somebody was talking about star lost. And they said Starlost killed sci-fi in Canada, like for as television, for probably 20 years. That it proved that you couldn't do a show like that in Canada. You just did not have the resources. So it's unfortunate because I, I had mentioned to you prior about a show called Space Command, which yeah. you know only one episode exists. I mean, it was more of a kid's show. And it was in the 50s. It was like those old Commander Cody Space Ranger and shows. Mm -hmm. But it had James, a young James Doohan and William Shatner guest starred. So there was, I think, a, that was a CBC show. And I think there was a thought that we can, you know, we can create content in all the genres, right? We've got fantasy, or friendly giant, right? Like stuff like that. <laughs> there's another hearkening back. And, yeah, but yeah, Star Lost, I think, really, really turned people away, uh, let's say American production companies and studios that thought they might want to do that. We still did service work, but as a homegrown product, Star Lost may have just told people, uh, Canadians don't do good sci-fi. What do they do really well? Horror, comedy, and anything set in the outdoors, right? Beachcombers, Forest Rangers, Ventures in Rainbow, <laughs> Danger Bay. They do that stuff well, but not science fiction it wouldn't be until maybe in the 90s when lex came out like lex was a pretty much canadian production and i would i would say now there's you know the expanse was shot in in canada and had a lot of canadian uh, input and stargate, stargate yeah another one shot in canada and yeah um, so i think we we finally got over that hump but for about 20 years i think star lost scared a lot of people away from like Canadians don't do sci-fi horror and comedy, sure. But and I'm and I'm also wondering if you've ever if you remember the SCTV sketch in the later years where they're they're at an awards it's an awards ceremony and SCTV is competing against major studios and they're they're going up against like Dragon Slayer and Raiders of the Lost Ark in an effects category and you know Guy Caballero has rigged it and they're winning all the awards and. I, I, there was this Zontar, the glowing cabbage effect, and it's from this Canadian SCTV movie, and it's just a cabbage with like a flashlight in it or something, and it's supposed to be like an <laughs> alien brain, and it wins the award for like best of visual effects. And I'm I'm wondering if that wasn't a a bit of a homage or a knock on Canadian sci-fi and Star Lost because yeah. there was another quote uh, somebody wrote about Star Lost from one of the I think one of the people working on it and said. A thousand Javex bottles does not a set make. Because um, you can tell, like in different parts, it, it's, it's just plastic bottles sticking out of the walls. Yeah. And, you know, a same plastic Tupperware piece that's in one set was in Oro's ship 
well, it, it's the exact same prop, right? Like it's anyway. Yeah, which which happens in television a lot. It's just a little bit more noticeable as far as the the cheapness of it here. Yeah, <laughs> and those egg crate things, man. Yeah, you guys like have they, been you guys have been pointing that out a lot. And it, I mean, once you once you notice it, <laughs> it, they are everywhere. They're the yeah. most versatile product. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here's something else I wanted to bring up, uh, and that is that if you are listening along and watching on the DVD set, you may have noticed that the DVD set's dates are slightly different from the dates that I'm giving on the show here and that you would find on Wikipedia. And so this episode I'm saying was November 9th, 1973. Uh, But here's the deal. I've said this before. Wikipedia's air dates seem to be taken from the NBC broadcasts on Saturdays in their syndication package that they offer to NBC affiliates. And so when it started, it was one week and one day behind the CTV broadcasts until the Tom Jones special, which preempted star loss for a week. After that CTV aired episodes the day before NBC, but the DVD collection still has a slightly different broadcast date order than what I'm using. Uh, And what happened was I started realizing that NBC's broadcast dates were not the same. And I started looking deeper and I found, I wouldn't call it conspiracy, but a discrepancy. The DVD liner notes have dates that are just way off from the NBC dates. And I did then find a website where a man named Kevin McCory posted the TV listings of Canadian TV in the early seventies. I believe it was a Newfoundland maritime listings or something like that. Uh, There's some dates that were missing from what he had, but he included the episode titles when it was available. So for example, just for this episode, or this weekend, Wikipedia had the Alien Oro on November 3rd. The DVD collection has the Alien Oro on November 23rd. And the DVD collection says it was Circuit of Death, which is today's episode that was actually on November 2nd, which I would have recorded about last week if I was going by the DVD set. But Kevin, Kevin said that the Alien Oro was November 2nd, which was the day before NBC aired it. That's the day before the Wikipedia listing. And the same right now with uh, with Circuit of Death, which is uh, on November, November 9th. Circuit of Death and uh, November 10th was Circuit of Death on NBC. Uh, but the DVD collection says Gallery of Fear was actually on the 9th. So I'm going with Kevin and I'm, I'm going to go ahead because I, I feel like he had the newspaper listings. I, I don't know exactly what he was using, but I'm, I can't imagine him making up stuff and like just making up, well, this Star Lost episode. I mean, because it's not Star Lost episodes he's listing. He's listing everything. Yeah. Just everything, which was very interesting to see. Like uh, after the star lost, I think it was um, Sanford and son or something like that. And it was just like to see like how they did the the different TV lineups and things like that. But that's what I'm doing. That's how I'm doing it. That's why we're doing this episode on this date. And the other thing is we talked a little bit last week about how they aired these episodes out of production order, which is a common thing in sci-fi. Uh, the biggest one that I probably remember with, uh, the biggest problem for fans is Firefly when Fox decided the pilot episode wasn't exciting enough right. and didn't introduce the concept well enough. So they aired a more exciting episode, the one about the the train robbery, and they aired that one first, even though in the pilot episode, a lot of the characters are meeting each other and you're getting back back uh, background uh, background information about the characters. And but they did that. It was out of linear order, uh, but 
that's a common thing when a, a network just looks and says, well, what's going to be the best introduction for this show? And we talked about a little bit last week. I think the Alien Oro, one of the things that they were like looking at was, hey, it's got Chekhov. Yeah. <laughs> and so let's let's put that out there. But this is, again, out of order. And one of the things that you'll notice is they're wearing different clothes. I was, was going to ask not, you that. I was going to say, because yeah. you've watched the whole thing now. I I was wondering when did they get the uniforms, but in the Oro episode, they do put those uniforms on to go outside. Those uniforms are used as spacesuits. Yeah. And they put the helmet on. And so I I'm not sure where it all happens, but I think that this was meant to be an episode to air after the Alien Oro, but it wasn't meant to be episode number nine. And so as we go along, do they go again, do they go back years. to the original clothing they have on? It's been years. I don't remember. Okay. And so I'm pretty sure we're going to get some episodes where they're in the original clothing. Okay. But don't quote me on that. Right. <laughs> uh, some people might think I'm just overthinking things, but that's what podcasters do. <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to overthink and I'm going to put a lot more thought into this show than maybe it deserves. But I'm having fun doing it. So that's the important thing. Absolutely. Um, except for last week. So last week committed the cardinal sin of being boring. To me, I don't know if you thought it was boring, but I just, I just had a hard time. Even though Walter Koenig was in it this week, we have another Star Trek guest star. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> it's also written by Norman Kleinman and he's the writer that pushed back against Harlan Ellison, both back then. And when he was interviewed for the, uh, the book that I use science fiction television series, he pushed back about Harlan Ellison. He's also the guy, and I'm going to read the quote now. Keep this quote in mind as we're talking about this episode. This is Norman Kleiman. He says, Ben Bova was a nice guy and a big name in science fiction, but what has science fiction got to do with drama? Stories are stories. Characters are characters. As head writer, I never found anything Mr. Bova had to say germane to our task. It was all sorts of intellectual mumbo jumbo. He couldn't reduce it to clear, precise instructions. TV viewers are interested in the characters, not scientific theory or accuracy. We use very little of the latter two, and no one missed them. <laughs> Bova was a talented man with a sure reputation. He was too courteous to cause a problem. He was just misplaced. And we've talked about how Ben Bova and Harlan Ellison were not happy that they were just ignoring those notes. But this is one of those episodes where I'm very curious what kind of notes Ben Bova had. <laughs> and we're going to talk about it right now. But Ben Bova, who was embarrassed that his name came up with Science Consultant, on the credits every single episode. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So let's just jump in. Act one. <laughs> Our three young people, Devin, Garth, and Rachel, are not there in the beginning of this episode. Instead, we have two people unfamiliar to us, but who we'll find out are father and daughter. It's, uh, it's Richards and Valerie. And they come onto the bridge on a mission that's basically a kind of a final solution. They come from a dome called Alpha Phi. They cannot return. And part of that problem is because they just, they're not going to go back because of problems they're having there, but it's also biodegrading. And he has a quick solution that's going to avoid long-term suffering. So he is someone like our three young people who is thinking about the arc in long, long-term. They are on the bridge and they plan to enter the circuit room. And when they do this, the computer notifies our heroes that someone is illegally entering the bridge circuit room and the self-destruct system is compromised. The father is bypassing the self-destruct fail safes. They're going to blow up the ship. 
The daughter is waffling. She's unsure about this course of action, but the father is determined. And then they're confronted by the trio who ask for their help and say, hey, you know about circuits and stuff? We don't, but we need your help. You can help us with this ship. The father is dismissive. He has known for years that the Ark is off course. They're loading up a capsule that will launch itself with all the history and art and theology of humanity. Uh, But something's wrong. They're telling our trio, we're just doing this to save the stuff because that's what it's here for. Just in case something goes wrong, it'll get launched. But they're also putting emergency rations on the ship. So the trio knows something's up. The father maintains that he can help them. Don't worry. He tricks them into leaving the room. He closes the door, locks the door, arms the launch countdown for the pod to escape and also self-destruct for the ship. And as they, as he does that, a guard from Alpha Phi comes and he wants Richards. He wants Valerie and we cut to commercial. Okay. (laughs) So there we are. Now, now if we track back over that, um, I had some notes. Yeah, did, yeah did, let's talk did, about them. Okay, did you notice in that opening scene where the Richards, um, you know, come into that bridge area, and he, she's sitting down, he comes over and sits down beside her. You can see clearly, just in behind them, the shadow of the boom mic guy. Um, I watched back. I did a, not I, notice I went that. back a couple of times just to make sure. I'm like, is that his shadow? And, but he's not moving. And then I look, and you could clearly see there's someone in the in the crew who accidentally got in there, which matches up with what was the episode with the Methuselah, I think, where there's a fly. I did see that. There was a fly in the okay. in the room. So you're this. I did not see the fly, I but did. My, my co-host did. So yeah. <laughs> um, I the other note I had when, when that alarm goes off. Um, our famous uh, AI guy, um, he, he it's saying, you know, there's an alarm. Somebody uh, is on the bridge, unauthorized is on the bridge, and they just they just say the same thing back. Oh, somebody must have got onto the bridge. It's triggered the alarm. Like I just, as a writer, I'm like, yeah, we kind of got that right. I I think the characters can extrapolate from Not, the alarm going off that they don't yeah. need to repeat that, right? I don't know why. They, Things get repeated a lot in this episode. But yes. The the thing with that line is Rachel says, if they tripped the alarm, that means they know about the bridge. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, well, no, I mean, they could have gone on the bridge and not know anything about it. The alarm is there for whoever is going to go through. Yeah. This. It's like it's it doesn't mean they know anything about it at all. The, the other thing that's that escape pod uh, that they're loading up. Uh, like how big was it? They they mentioned how it's very cramped. There's not a lot of room, but we'll fit. And they're going to get in this and go where? Like it's going to shoot them off away from the ark. But right. how? Okay, they have food. Do they have a bathroom in that thing? Because like it wasn't <laughs> built. It was built for non, you know, not for humans to go into. It was supposed to be just archives and stuff to shoot it out to. Yeah. And they're using it as a life raft. But I just thought. It didn't make any sense. How do you, well, you know? It, it makes me think we didn't talk about this, but the alien Oros ship is just, yeah, it's a very open yeah. space, but a very tiny open space. I thought the same thing. No, no furniture. No, <laughs> no, no, definitely no bathroom. There's no bathroom. Although maybe Oro, Oro may not need it, but uh, his, his passenger would have. Um, I mean, at least yeah. the, like the earlier ship, the Pisces, um, in that episode, it looked big enough, even though they, they were supposed to have six people in it, 
I thought, that's not a very big ship for six people over 10 years. Like, th- that would drive you crazy, wouldn't it? Like, You know what makes me think of, though, is in, in Star Wars, where they're talking about, like, the distances between planets. And this has always been something that I've been curious about, the timeline for Empire Strikes Back, where it's, you know, he goes to Dagobah, they go to Bespin, they're running, you know, he's he's training for a couple of weeks. And the timeline just is a little bit wonky, but emotionally it works right. you know character arc it works but the impression that you get is he's spending a lot of time in that single cockpit spaceship yeah. like he's there's a travel time going on there and it's not just two minutes you know it's you're talking about days you know you're talking and millennium falcon you're great yeah it's it's awesome they've, they've got all the rooms and stuff but in, in that x-wing he's just in that seat he's gonna get major cramps maybe get a blood clot i mean there's always oh, got a diaper a lot on. of health issues yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and in that, the first act as well, um, like uh, Dr. Richards, he, he what's he doing? Like a Vulcan neck pinch on his daughter there? Like he just kind of... That's the same note I put Yeah, there. like he just grabs her and all of a sudden she's like out. And it, it's convenient for the story because he needs her unconscious to put her in. But I just, I was like, what is he doing? Choking her or... No, he just... Doop, and... We're going to find out later. Actually, he might even mention here in, the, in Act 1 that she's an invalid. Yes. So she's not going to be much help. Yeah. Um, but, my, but my note was Valerie is an invalid or does her father know the Vulcan neck nerve yeah, pinch? Because that's what I thought. It's, it, because it clearly looks like he is causing her to go unconscious. That's what I think. It's not, yeah. it's not that she's having a, a seizure because we find out later she's not left. Yeah. And, I think it was but, a story, right? They just needed that device because yeah. they needed to keep her out of the story while he's doing other stuff. And, and the launch of that emergency life raft, whatever it is, is the longest launch for something like that. Like it was, um, but as you were talking <laughs> about time, you know, how long things take, uh, we'll get into that as we get into the next few oh, acts, yeah. right? Yeah. So the other thing I, thought about we talked about this already but they're on the bridge but that is not the same bridge set right. that they were using but one thing this is a nice little mention the bodies are gone yes and it makes me wonder like did did our trio did they like do something to lay the bodies to rest like that's a very interesting thing that happened between first episode and this episode is bodies have been moved oh and- dude, that that's a setup then for something that's coming later isn't it we'll see we'll see I've got a, I've got a big question. And then the other thing that was kind of nice was they say we're from Cypress Corners, and he says, yeah. Richard says, Cypress Corners. Oh, yeah, that place. Like he totally knows what it is. Yeah, that place. Here's another question I had: Why would the Ark have a self destruct mechanism? I get it on like the Enterprise; they use it a few times in Star Trek, but it was more. It's like a military ship and you may say well we don't want our technology to get into our enemy's hands or something but why would you need a self-destruct on a huge you know arc the ship meant to save humanity yeah like i i, I just thought <laughs> it's a convenience something they needed for the plot but i just thought it doesn't make any rational sense why you'd and all it takes is one guy opening it and poof, you know not even two guys with yeah. keys for like for a nuclear missile you need two guys with keys <laughs> no. this is just one guy and no, as long as he has the right code. Two turns, though. <laughs> turn it, turn it counterclockwise, and then turn it clockwise. Yeah. And so his whole thing is he's so pessimistic and he's so nihilistic where he's looking at it and saying, this is the best option for everyone involved. Yeah. We escape. 
because we have this plan that only will work for two of us and everyone else is not going to suffer. Yeah. And so it's, it's this final solution of we're going to just kill everyone before they have a chance to suffer. And it is a wild leap of logic for him, (laughs) but, but it's there. Yeah. Act two opens with lots of stock footage of the ship Mm -hmm. (laughs) and father and daughter wait to launch. Uh, but there is a system failure and now the lifeboat can't launch, but the arc is still going to blow up. So now Richard wants to stop the self-destruct. There's some mumbo jumbo that they give about father and daughter not getting off the capsule. And it's just this kind of fake drama that we really could have skipped, but it does give us something to do where they can't get off and they have to get the door open. Uh, the guard guy who's there is actually someone who has a, at least a friendship with Valerie, with the daughter. Um, and he's there to also give a little bit of exposition. Uh, but now that they get off the capsule, Richards is going to do what it takes to stop the self-destruct because he's got to try. It's for his daughter, right? And then we get the weird sci-fi thing of this episode <laughs> where he says, okay, we're going to go into the circuit. And they're like, what? And he says, this, this is his exact quote. How do you expect to fix a micro circuit unless you get inside it? Which I guess is the question that everyone has to answer in life is how do you expect to do this? Uh, so they create, they have a, a station where they can lay, you know, uh, recline in a chair and they create a psychic projection of Roberts or Richards and Devon to go into the circuit board so they can manually fix the circuits. They're not going to use tweezers. They're not going to use magnifying glasses. They're going to actually shrink themselves down psychically. They still are regular size in their, in their bodies, but they're sending a projection of themselves. We get this explanation three or four times now in this episode of just how this all works to make sure that we all understand the made up science of it. But then they find themselves on a set with giant props of tiny things, which is another trope that sci-fi uses from honey. I shrunk the kids to, um, red dwarf did it. Um, uh, the, the episode that red dwarf did it in, uh, is they their tiny ship gets shrunk down and they go through the vents of the of the ship they come across a a rat and it's one of the the more uh gross jokes in the show where they end up in the rat's bottom and fly the rat around but um but the set I like the set I I feel like the set works but yeah so they are tiny on the circuit board and they are kind of in a hypnotized state outside of the the circuit board controlling these psychic projections and so my note here this is commercial break and my note here is that ben bova had to be going nuts reading this script and then if you ever watched it he had to be going nuts but norman understood tv bova only understood science fiction forget the fact that he was a award-winning novelist um but my question for you is do you think it's better that they didn't actually shrink and then instead it was this kind of weird psychic projection Yes, I, I, or, I, I, or, okay. I, I liked that they didn't do an actual shrinking thing, but I didn't like the telekinesis angle. I, <laughs> I, I thought they could have come up with something that combined maybe like VR so that you think you're there and you're actually some type of energy that does the actual work. I, I just thought the telekinesis has always been so unproven as 
Like they, they make it sound in the in the episode like, oh yes, we've always known about telekinesis and anyone can enhance right, it. Right. They at least acknowledge whatever device they're using, they're acknowledging that they're not actually there in person. It's it's like an avatar type thing that they're in there manipulating the materials through some kind of other means. I like that. I like that they were still out there. My question was, why is this technology only being used in this episode, in this situation? Why didn't the children of Methuselah have suits like that for the work they were doing? It's similar to the other episode where they have the ability to make people young, right? Uh, it's the same one, where, where they, they make you young forever. Yeah. Why is it only used there? Why wouldn't That's a very useful thing to have, the cryogenics. Like there's no crossover yeah. in the in your world building of the technologies. It's just too convenient, right? As we needed for this episode, yeah. going into the thing, it's very Tron. Like people have have said, this was mm-hmm. interesting that they did this before Tron. It's it's also harkening a bit to Fantastic Voyage, right? The ability to mm-hmm. shrink down and go inside and and do your surgery. In this case, repair the circuits. I agree. The set actually looked like they had put some money into that set. And it helped get rid of that claustrophobic feel that you have outside of it, right? Because it's it's so much more spacious. It's funny because the the tiniest space. I mean, this is supposed to be just a fraction of an inch, yeah. But it feels the most spacious. Yeah. There's an uh, an uh, issue of Iron Man. I don't know if it's Avengers or Iron Man, where Iron Man's suit gets locked up, and he's basically entombed in his suit, and it's all sealed off, and he's going to die. He's going to asphyxiate eventually. So Ant Man has to infiltrate the suit, go in and try and, you know, blow the thing that's stopping it from, to prevent it from freezing. And it's like Fantastic Voyage, except it's all cyber gear. And Iron Man's suit has all these security things that are attacking Ant-Man. So he's got to, he's got to dodge and overcome all these obstacles to free Tony Stark from his own suit. And it reminded me a little bit of this one. Like I thought that was a cool parallel. I think it actually shrunk. I don't know if, that would have been a step too far for me as far as just the, the ridiculousness. Um, but you're right. As far as like, there's no connectivity in the world building. And it would have been one thing if it had been like, this is our technology from our dome that we brought with us. Right. And no one else has it. Cause it's from our dome and the domes are all disconnected for, you know, years and years and years, but this is actually just on the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, this is the setup that they have to fix the computers. In Act 3, Garth consults the computer, and it would be repetitive. No, it is repetitive. But we do get some extra information about the stakes of what they're doing. But basically, Garth says, hey, what are they doing? And the computer just explains once more, this is how this works. This is how they are shrinking telekinesis. He talks about, like you said, telekinesis just is what it is. You know, they've always been able to do this. And now we're... But they could die in there. We find that out. The odds of success are 53 to 1. And I actually love that number because it's not a 1,000 to 1 or, you know, 1% chance. It's 53 to 1. It's just such an, a weird number. It's just perfect. I love that. We also get background on Richards. Seems he was part of a political takeover because there were two political parties. And this is where you get some interesting uh, world yeah. building. In their dome... There were two political parties. One was the Citizens Party, and the other thought discipline and thought control were necessary to maintain peace and social order. They were preserving freedom by eliminating freedom. And Richards was pessimistic and didn't fit in with the new order that they had. And that's part of why he's on the run. 
Meanwhile, Richards and Devin are working on the circuit board. What I was reminded of is a team of astronauts or scuba divers who are getting information from mission controllers. Rachel and Valerie are giving instructions and they are tracking time for them. And then we also get some more exposition from Valerie about why her father is like this. Why did he want to destroy the ship? She says scientists became more and more isolated. The political party gained more strength through police forces. And her father is too far gone in his despair and his pessimism. Meanwhile, Devin is speechifying and tries to give Richards hope and optimism. But Richard says, I've seen the evils of men, but I've not yet seen God. And then he immediately gets electrocuted right. <laughs> and they, they shorted something out. So now he's almost unconscious. He can talk in his body, but he can't move in his psychic projection. Devin can't touch him because he's bridging two circuits, even though this is a psychic projection. I'm not sure how the physicality works here. Mm -hmm. uh, and now to top it all off, Valerie goes into an epileptic seizure. So Richards talks to Rachel and talks her through everything. And we get a, completely different ticking timer we have two ticking timers going on here and then a commercial break yeah that ticking clock they should have just had more time on it to start with they, they start with 15 minutes and uh-huh and and i think uh garth spends 15 minutes talking to the machine like there's huge huge chunks that even if you say well maybe they happen at the same time so they're showing what happened while this happened here the countdown doesn't add up They've spent way more time doing stuff than the counter is moving. And it distracted me after a while. It's like, you've been talking for five minutes. How can only a minute have gone by on the clock? I just would have added more time to the, to the yeah. thing. It just stood out to me. You've been, you've been doing this, 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 and this. Ten minutes have gone by, and only two minutes went by on your, on your ticker. How is that possible? Uh, one of the things I did say, and I really appreciated this, it takes effort to be free. Right. Like that was a really interesting thing. And so you have another episode though, where they have people from a dome talking about a dome, but we're not going to domes. Like this show is supposed to be about going to the different domes. Now, I guess there's only 37, 36 domes on the actual model. And so for them to actually go to each and every dome, you only get 37 episodes. Yeah, you're right. Like of all the episodes of eight episodes, they started in a dome. There was one other kind of the the one with Colicos. They were in that dome. Yeah. But why couldn't they shoot outside? You know, like Doctor Who and Star Trek and those, they'd have the outdoor episodes. I think the Doctor Who, the rule was if you shot inside, it was on video. And if you shot outside, it was on film. And then they would try to match it a bit. It just would have given them so many more options. So it, like, you know, you talk about bottle episodes. Every episode feels like a bottle episode because... They're not going anywhere. There's no, there's no sense of the expansion of the, of the world. But I guess with this episode, at least you can say it made sense because they were going, you know, right, in, right, inward, right. They're going to inner space as opposed to outer space. And well, there's another. Wasn't that another shrink yeah, with yeah. inner space, right, where they shrink in the body? Yeah. yeah was that Martin, Martin Short? Short? Yeah, Dennis. Uh -huh. <laughs> so Act Four, Richards. He's very pessimistic about even getting out of this alive, but they can help. Rachel knows her stuff. She watched Valerie do the psychic shrinky dink treatment on Devin and Richard Richards. So she sends Garth in to help. There's some drama here. And I, I'll say, I, I, I'm going to say right now, I'm not bored watching this episode. Really? I feel like there's enough going on. There's some, there's some silly moments where it's like, okay, too much, too much establishing mm -hmm. the ship, you know, and that kind of thing. But I'm, 
I'm engaged and didn't mind rewatching this episode. And so they, they rescue Richards. They bypass the power around him by taking their pool noodles. And the pool noodles are meant to be like copper wire. And then they have black dots on the floor. Some of them are actually holes that they can put the end of the pool noodle in. It's not an actual pool noodle because I'm pretty sure they weren't invented back then, but I might be wrong. And they, they rescue Richards and they save him. He stands up and immediately he tells Garth and Devin, get out of here. Yeah. And once more, he he lies a little bit. This time to get them out of there, he's they say, okay, you're going to be okay? Yeah, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be great. It's going to be fine. Right. But he has to die. He knows he will die doing this. And once they get out of there, he says to his daughter, I still think I'm right, that my course of action was the right course of action, but I'm giving you all a second chance. He touches the wire to the circuit board, smash cut to the ship, because we're doing the countdown smash cut to the ship that does not blow up so valerie mourns they're all sad they didn't meet him earlier because he could have helped them they end on a smile but not on a joke and so that's one of the i've seen complaints about star trek the original series how they'll go through some horrible horrible stuff but the final scene they're standing on the bridge telling jokes and laughing and making fun of spock's green blood or whatever Okay, here's the here's the only problem I had with the ending. I I agreed. I was thinking of like those jokey Star Star Trek endings, and I thought the ending for this one was going to be just the image of Richard superimposed over the the circuit board kind of thing, and I thought that actually would have been which they did. Yeah, they do that, but the, yeah. then they come out to them leaving the room, and uh, you know Valerie and her, her beau go the one way, and they kind of said, "Well, I wish we'd gotten to know him better," and and then they just leave. The body is still in the room, right? Like the body is just <laughs> still sitting there in that chair. Who's who's going to dispose of the body? Like I grew up in a funeral home, right? My dad was a funeral director. So maybe I'm just biased towards what are you going to do with the body? But uh, that that kind of spoiled the, that ending for me. Uh, if they had cut it right just with the the, the crossover of, of Richards and that and gone from that, I thought that would have been a nice, perfect ending. But you just left a dead body sitting in a chair, and it's like, okay, let's go. Ho ho! Someone else will pick that up, I guess. Anyway, I'm I'm being nitpicker. Okay, right I was not setting that up when I talked about the dead bodies. Yeah, earlier. yeah that's what I thought you were. <laughs> that did not to. even cross my mind. Yeah, <laughs> so I don't. Know, am I being too? Oh, is man. that too nitpicky? But I just no. I mean, there's validity to that. Um, but it could have happened off camera. Yeah, I, I I thought later then. Well, maybe you know. Valerie and her guy will come back with some people and, of course, take her, her dad's body and bury it in Alpha 5 or whatever. But anyway, it was... <laughs> the, the thing, too, in the circuits, like, they, they had to be so careful about not stepping on, you know, two circuits at the same time. But they seem to do it all the time. Like, there was the one time when, when Richards is trying to get up after being down, and he's so careful where, where he's putting his hands, but yet he's still crossed on both circuits. I was like, I thought you couldn't be on the white side and the black side at the same time. And anyway, that's where I was like, okay, just go with it. There were clearly times when I think the director was thinking about it and making sure. And then there were other yeah. times where it's like, we got the shot. Yeah. We got the shot. Let's stick with it. My overall feeling for the for this episode was that it's carried entirely by Percy Rodriguez. Uh, to, mm -hmm. For me, like if you don't have him buying into the character and selling that character and like it's a pretty, I mean, as an actor, it must be a pretty 
silly type of show, right? Like, and he's, he's on the floor for half of it, and he's in a chair mumbling for parts of it. But it's, it, the actor seems to buy into it completely. And, you know, certainly Miss Virgin, she's, she's a little wooden. I get that her character would be that way growing up with us, maybe in, in that society and with that, with that father. But I just thought, you, do, you don't have a lot of energy coming out of her. And it's really, that whole episode is anchored by Rodriguez's performance and some of the writing, like his, his dialogue at times and the way he delivers it. You believe it. You believe that this character is real. And, and that saves it because you're dealing with, you know, a set that looks like you really have to suspend disbelief. <laughs> um, just a lot of nonsense going on that other, it, it, that, that whole episode could have just been the worst of, of the ones I've watched so far. But he rescued it in my mind. Yeah. Well, so this is a guy with hundreds mm. of, of credits to his name. And Percy Rodriguez, he's, uh, I believe he's from Toronto. I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. Or I, Montreal. I know he is Canadian. He might be Montreal. But, yeah. But he, he is Canadian. Uh, but he has, I mean, his, his career is a Hollywood career. So just a couple highlights. Captain EO, the Michael Jackson short video Ooh. that they did for the ride at Disney. He was the uncredited narrator. Uh, he was on TJ Hooker. So he has appeared on a TV show with, with Shatner. Shatner. Uh, the Fall Guy, Roots, the Next Generations. Going back fast to some other shows uh, that are similar to, to what we've got here. But Planet of the Apes, he was uh, on the TV series for Planet of the Apes. Genesis 2, which is a Roddenberry TV movie. He was on that. Uh, police surgeon, which we've talked yeah, about on the show before, <laughs> which I've never heard of, but I am pretty sure I know what it's about. Yeah. Um, Ironside, uh, Adventures in Rainbow Country, Mannix. He's also Wild Wild West, which is another show that I'm a huge, huge fan of. But what wasn't he in? Come on. What wasn't he in? He was not in The Littlest Hobo. He was not. He was not. He was on Star Trek, though. That's that's one big one. That's that He big was one. in the episode of Star Trek uh, Court Martial. But his career goes back to 1955. Looks like he passed away in 2007. So that is Percy Rodriguez. Yep. But the other actors, you threw it out there already, but Noreen Virgin, uh, both she and Percy, I'm thinking, I know these people from somewhere. So we start with with characters we don't know but we're starting with faces i do know mm-hmm. and then you're looking into oh oh he was on star trek oh he, well Noreen virgin it took me a long while to figure out what i knew her from and it's because uh i watched her a lot when i was a kid she was on a show called today's special mm-hmm. which is the kind of as an adult going back and looking at some of those episodes it feels creepier than i remember feeling when i was a kid but it's about a, a mannequin that comes to life after hours in uh, in a store, and she was the the lead actress. She was the the person who worked at the store, yeah. so I had seen her often. But she was also on Police Surgeon, thirty four episodes of Police Surgeon. I'm assuming she was one of the a main cast member there, and the Littlest Hobo. <laughs> so she was our Littlest Hobo connection, or one of them for this episode. The streak lives. And here's something else she was on, but I'm going to assume that I never saw her do this because it was 1971, but she was on Polka Dot Door. Oh, wow. She was one of the hosts on Polka Dot Door, which is another Canadian children's show. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I was glad to have you on this episode because I knew if I brought up today's special, you would know 
you would know it and be familiar with it. I'm not sure how old you were when it came out. If it would have been a thing that you would have been like, I got to watch this, but I was a little tyke. I mean, I was yeah first, second grade for me. So Probably I wouldn't have been watching it a lot, but when you only have three channels, you just kind of know all the shows that are on after a while. <laughs> yeah. And I we had three channels as well. I know we had CTV and CBC. Mm-hmm. I don't know what our third channel was, but that was the channel that I think was like a public television channel. TV Ontario. TVO. Yes, that's that's right. And and that had a lot of the Sesame Street and and those kind of shows were on, yes. on that that channel for us. That's right. So then finally we we had, we didn't talk about his character very much, but Calvin Butler was the the police guy who yeah. they apologized to him when they're talking about like the political party and like you're one of them. Sorry, but you're one of them. He's like, yeah, but we could change it from the inside. But he was also a littlest hobo connection for us yes. and a police surgeon connection for us. We've so. got to track that show down now. Holy cow. Yeah. yeah. We've talked about Norman Kleiman a little bit, but our director, Peter Levin, 81 credits on IMDb. He directed episodes of judging Amy in the two thousands. Yep. Chicago hope he directed an episode. Uh, so he, ha- I mean, he had a career, mm-hmm. but it started his first credit is this episode of the That's star right. lost. This launched so, him. And then from there, he went to direct Starsky and Hutch and Knott's Landing and Palmerstown, USA, whatever that is. Hmm. Oh, 10 episodes of Lou Grant. That's actually... That's that's up there. Yeah, Two of Cagney and Lacey, two from Fame. I mean, he, he did have a career. Yeah, he parlayed it. And he started with Star Lost. Like that, that's, that's actually impressive. He was able to take that and build and build from there, so... And it's not it, like if you look at the direction of this episode, it's not bad. It's like I said, the, a, a problem that a lot of these episodes have is pacing. This one isn't as bad as some of the others, right? It's it's hard to give any episode like a an A grade for anything other than acting. We've had definitely A grade acting in some of the episodes, yeah. but the direction isn't bad in this. It's you know, working with what he had. It, it's not bad. I want to say the pacing is probably the editing, though. Yeah. I don't think the pacing was necessarily our director because that's true. What he's trying to do whatever he can with what he's got. There's yeah. movement of the camera. The camera is moving. You get some really fast zoom in and zoom out. Yeah. Uh, there's also some just like micro zooms where it's like you've got a head and shoulders of Garth and then it just kind of moves just slightly zooms out a little bit. Yeah. And you know, he's, he's trying to move the camera in what limited space he has. Okay. So they ignored the notes about the science from Ben Bova. But like the alien Oro, this episode has an emotional through line that works. Mm-hmm. If you ignore the science or if you take it at face value as a fantasy and, and just realize, okay, telekinesis doesn't exist, right. but they create rules that they follow. And the other thing though, is Richard's character arc where he goes from a complete and utter, almost nihilist, but definite pessimist who is going to kill everyone to help everyone. He ends up sacrificing himself instead. And I still think I'm right. (laughs) I love, I love that he has that qualification there. I still think I'm right, but I'm going to give you guys a second chance and let you guys try it. And, but he's also one of the only people that they've come across that could, if they had a long-term relationship with him, been a help because his daughter is not that. And it sounds like other people in the dome are not that the scientists became isolated. He's very dismissive of Cypress corners. Oh, that place. 
But then also he's been persecuted basically in his own dome. And I could see him projecting that on other domes and the character arc makes sense. It's, it's decent screenwriting. It's not yeah. great, but it's nope. decent. Yeah. You, and like I said, his, his performance sells it and you, you, you feel that this character has changed from the beginning of the episode to the end. And for him to pull that off with not a, like I said, not a whole lot to work with. That's what elevates it right above what it, what it could have been. I, another side note, it's interesting that this star loss does seem to try to, I think, carry on the torch that Trek had star Trek of, you know, multiracial stories, right? So characters and, here we have, you know, three black actors um, at a time when there weren't a lot of them um, in maybe these types of shows, right? Like, you know, like in comedy, Sanford and Son or Good Times, you would see them in those situations. But here's here's a, a scientist and his daughter. Um, and it may be the, the fact that uh, all three are, you know, African, uh, African-American characters. Does that mean African Canadian? Yeah, or African Canadian in this case. But was that? Does that mean their dome was, you know, perhaps uh, African descent? We don't know. That's that is, another, another tease. That's right? definitely the impression that I get, though. Yeah, that, that's definitely the feel that they're giving here. Yeah, and but I liked, I like that, you know, it, it's reflecting, and it, especially in it's shot in Toronto, and even at that time, Toronto was becoming uh, very multicultural, right? And it's. Today, Toronto is probably the most cosmopolitan multicultural city in the world. There's literally, you know, somebody from every corner of the world in one city. And I think it's reflected a little bit in, in the Star Lost. They want to continue that tradition that Roddenberry had of, you know, it's not, just, it's not just the white race that's going out into space. We're all going and we're all going to be reflected there. So I like that. So I don't know. Do you have any more notes that you want to make sure we talk about before we close this one down? Um, the only other note I have in general about the show that it's it, what it's lacking and what it needs in, in several episodes is the stakes. It's hard to really appreciate the stakes of life and death when nobody really dies. Um, so what they need are red shirts, right? Like Star, <laughs> Star Trek, it, it was it, as a kid watching it, you were general, genuinely afraid sometimes because the threats were lethal. Right, devil in the dark is melting mm-hmm. human beings, right? And the the man, uh, the man trap with a salt vampire, and you had you had things that were going to kill you, and you saw guys get killed, M- women too, like uh, Charlie X. There's some really horrific things right, that happened right. to Charlie X, right? So there's this real and Space 1999 did a good job of that. Like they they killed a lot of people, uh, at least implied. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, in in horrible ways sometimes. So you had a real sense of dread, a real a real threat. And in this, we know our trio are likely never going to really be in danger of death, or you don't have a show, right? So our trio are kind of going along. Um, but once in a while, I would have liked to have seen more more threat and more stakes that way. That people are getting killed um, on the screen. It's it was implied in in the one that. Uh, the governor may have killed some of his guards in a challenge fight, but you know, the, off screen and he was only off screen for like five seconds. Yeah. So it was like, he's a, he's a killer, that guy. Um, 
that's that's the other uh, thing they did not have any budget for. Apparently, is choreography, right? Like they're, the fight scenes, oh, the the action scenes are really, really. I mean, sometimes we joke about Star Trek about how you can tell, oh, there's the stunt double. You can tell that Kirk's hair changed or something. Or, but in this, in this, there's not even an attempt to do, really do proper fight <laughs> choreography at all. And there's no action, right? Like this is the eighth episode. And this is really more like a melodrama sci-fi um, because that's what they're limited to with their sets, with their storylines. It's very cerebral. It's a lot of people staring at each other with angst. It's, it's almost like an episode of the OC. But <laughs> Action is coming. Not a lot, but mm-hmm. what I remember from when I was a kid, like my, my strongest memories from when I was a kid were the melancholy music as they're panning across the spaceship. Right. And a couple action sequences where guns are actually being fired. Right. Those stuck out to me. I also remember seeing that ship and I was reminded more of Battlestar Galactica than of of Star Wars when mm. I was watching the the show. But that that I think comes from the television production value of establishing shots and reused footage. Which Star Wars didn't reuse footage. Right. Uh, they did establishing shots, but it was in dynamic ways and different ways. And yeah. here they're just We've got eight sweeps of the camera over the ship, and we're just going to cut them up in different, uh, in different orders, and and use those as our. You, know, you, you mentioned we... uh, the music, and mm-hmm. that's actually one part of the show I like. Uh, I, I wish some of the pieces that they would take that '80s synthesizer off, but the like that gets annoying. But underneath it, like the theme, the Starlost theme is actually pretty epic, right? Da, da, yeah. da, da. Like it, it's got a good underlying beat, and I, I noticed that the credits, the music was done by Score Productions, and they're still out there. Score Productions have been doing background music. They're based in California, I think. They're a U.S. company, but they do television ser- series background music, and like they did Get Smart and shows like that. Um, so I, I give them credit in this. I, I don't mind. Like I think the music works. It's there's not a lot of variation in it, but there's you can tell there's sections where they've kind of riffing from Star Trek. Um, I remember I, Sp- I, Space 1999. I did not like their music. It was way too, I don't know, eerie or dark or something. But I like I like the the mix in this one. The for me with the music, I'm reminded of in some places the. Uh, the day the earth stood still or some of those old sci-fi movies. And that's where you have that. It's not quite a theremin. Yeah. But it's a theremin feel like they're trying to give it. And then there's also that not quite disco, but it's like proto disco, like disco's coming and we're going to do some, something that sounds like that. And uh, I, I actually really, really like the music and I feel like while it can get repetitive, with any television show, you can get repetitive. Like yeah. even Star Trek, they had like, you know, we're going to score half of a season and then we're just going to reuse the music for the yeah. rest of the season. Yeah. And unless we have something we absolutely need something original for. And, and there's definitely that with this. Like if you're, if you're binge watching this show, the music might get repetitive and might bother you, Yeah, but it's, it is at least good. Like that's there's right. Some talent behind that. That's, that's not a weak point in this, in this show. You're always looking for what's something in this episode that's elevating it to to a point where you're like, I I don't mind watching this, and that's one of that's there's an element whether it's the acting in one or the music, the premise, 
there's just always something that's like, ah, oh, I, I and, and like with other shows like Space 1999, I binged watched that uh, during COVID. So I watched all the episodes and it, it was a slog. Like some episodes, I was just like, ah, I could just fast forward over this. It's not that yeah. interesting. And, but the Eagles, every episode that had an Eagle in it, like that ship design just captivates you. And you're like, what are they going to do with the Eagle in this episode? That's kind of what's missing in Star Lost. There's not, there's not a thing that you just can't wait to see, right? Like in Battlestar Galactica, it, it might the Cylons are really cool, or yeah, yeah, there's just not a cool recurring character, or maybe the AI in a in a way he can be annoying, but at least he's different. But I mean, that's Nathan's favorite part of the show. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I, I can at yeah. first it was really annoying, but now that I'm getting used to it. I am seeing like. It's at least giving it the color that differentiates it from yeah. something else, right? Yeah. So, uh, so the couple questions then, yeah, because uh, we kind of we kind of covered everything that would come up in in my show notes as far as like yeah. what would you do to fix it and and things like that. But my main question is: Are you going to stick with it? Are you going to finish it out? Are you going to watch the entire series? You've already watched half of it. I feel like I know the answer is why not but are you are you going to finish I, I may not do it as as been i was binging it in order to get ready for this but i might you know parse it out a bit more but i'd like to keep up with with the podcast and yeah for sure i'm gonna i'm gonna there's only eight more episodes why not like you said but it is there is nostalgia for me like there was for you uh it harkens back to like a certain episode i'll watch it and, and it does trigger oh yeah i remember this or anything there's there's some value in that and it's because it is canadian it's like like you said people have called it the worst you know sci-fi show ever and and, it, and that stuck for a while but now that i'm revisiting it i'm saying mm, no that's not fair um it's not the worst is it is it i don't know maybe the worst production values okay that's closer but as a whole no i've i'd put it above a lot of things Right. And I, after a while, last episode, I was not really looking forward to this one because I'm like, right. man, that one was just boring. But this actually had a lot going for it. Um, comparatively speaking, there was definitely a lot going for it. Uh, and I would say this ranks with a, a mid-tier maybe, or maybe lower mid-tier, but, but mid-tier Star Trek, you know, where the, you've got an idea. And yeah, there, there's some pacing, there's some problems, but... There's there's some ideas too, and as much as they might have ignored Ben Bova, I, it's almost forgivable. Almost forgivable. The, the the shrinking telekinesis psychic projection. They could use some work. It, it needs, let that go through an editor, you know. But but it worked. It's not a series that's going to sell toys, though, right? Like that's no. that's definitely what it isn't. It's no. it's. If you made it today, as people, you know, we've talked about, if you rebooted it and tried to do it today, you'd have to change a lot of things about it to try to widen the audience, try to bring a younger audience in. This is, I don't know, um, I, I, like I said, watching it now as an adult, I can suspend my disbelief in ways that I, are different than I could when I was 11. And I can, I can see past, like you've said this in other episodes, I think that you can see past what it is to what it was trying to be. And I can do that mm -hmm. now as an, as an adult viewer. I couldn't do that when I was 11 seeing this. I was like, this is not Star Wars. This is garbage. <laughs> um, 
you know, give me Buck Rogers, give me Battlestar Galactica. Those look like what I'm used to seeing. Yeah. This was too far from it. And, but now I'm, I'm like, I'm glad that you're doing this, this series. I'm glad you're revisiting it for one, because you've introduced people like me back to it and other people who had never heard of it. And I think that's, that's kind of a gift back to the creators of it, right? That nobody goes out there to, to make a bad show. And I'll give you one anecdote because I know you, you transitioned into, hey, what are you doing now and stuff? Yeah, yeah. One of my IMDb credits, if you go on my IMDb, was I was uh, a script consultant on the Marmaduke animated movie that was on Netflix. And it got, like, it. it's horrible, right? Like, <laughs> it's not very good at all. And I just had, all I was doing was script uh, consolidation and I did some dialogue uh, stuff on it that they end up didn't really use, but I was in the room. It was it was it was storyboard and everything up here in Toronto, and I happened to know the producer, so he brought me in on it. And I was in the room with a lot of the story artists, the storyboard artists, and and then a lot of the animation was then farmed out to studios in China. The guys I was working with for a couple of let's say two months, um, absolute brilliant artists. And they knew animation. They love classic animation. We would sit there and I said, these guys are brilliant. They're funny. They, they have all these great ideas to make this, this Marmaduke movie really funny and cool. And then you see the finished product. And you're like, this is not like you. They were limited by how much time they had, how, many, how much resources and budget they had, what kind of animation styles they could use. And they didn't have control over the finished animation projects. But those guys set out to make something really good, right? They, they didn't want to make something that, you know, it's got like one out of 10, um, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes or something. And that's what I think I can identify now with Star Lost is the people behind that show, from the writers to the directors, the actors, everybody wants to make a great show. Nobody goes in there thinking, oh, I don't care about this. They, they want it to be good because it looks good on them if it's good. And it just doesn't always work out, right? And I think that you can tell when you watch this series, there's enough people involved in it that you can feel the heart in it, that we're trying to make something good here, something that has important ideas and you know quality to it. Is it always executed? No. Um, but it's not any one person's fault. Um, and I, I think that's why you, others who have watched it, were more forgiving of it. Um, because it, it wasn't just made, it wasn't made to cash in on Star Wars. It was made before Star no. Wars. If, if anything, it was trying to follow in the tradition of Space uh, Odyssey and maybe even Doctor Who, right? And things like that. And uh, other things that Harlan Ellison was interested in. The Prisoner. These were big idea people. They weren't trying to sell toys. And I like that. I like that that type of product was out there at that time. I didn't like it as an 11-year-old. Okay. <laughs> no lightsabers? What, are you crazy? Um, well, and they were definitely, when it was on TV for us to watch in the late 70s, they were selling it to us. Like, they were... Exactly. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to say, hey, guys, this is really a cerebral, great sci-fi show you young guys will like. Like... Yeah. <laughs> with all that said, then I just want to say thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for spending time with us talking about this and uh, hopefully it was fun for you. And hopefully, yeah, as, as Dave said, we, 
are allowing you to find and discover something new or or not, you know, just eavesdrop on the conversation. You don't have to watch the show to, to enjoy what we're talking about here, but uh, you can find links to all of our social media and things and stuff like that on upfromtheashespodcast.com. And we have show notes for every episode that will give you links to different um well, our Facebook page and things like that. So our Facebook page is facebook.com slash up from the ashes podcast. We do have a new Patreon uh, page that is patreon.com slash up from the ashes podcast. The buy me a coffee thing is great. And the support for buy me a coffee is wonderful. They're great people. But I have in talking with a couple people found that um, Patreon is actually a little bit more um, easy to use. So you can go to patreon.com slash up from the ashes podcast or buymeacoffee.com slash up from the ashes where both of those places, any kind of support at all will allow you to have access to all of our bonus episodes where we are going through Star Trek, the animated series 50 years later. And that's just a bonus. Thank you. That is not that you're giving $3 to buy extra episodes. It's $3 supporting the podcast. And we're saying thank you by doing that. And and by we, I mean me, I'm doing it solo for, for that. Cause it's, it's meant to be short. It's meant to be quick and dirty for me recording it. It's, it's yeah. So with all that said, Dave, I don't know if you have any final words you want to give, but actually your final words about Nobody sets out to make garbage. I think that's a pretty good final word, but any other final word or any? No, I'll just, I'll be eager to see the rest of the episodes and follow the podcasts and we'll see if we can keep that uh, littlest hobo streak going. Yeah. Yeah. I do need to go backwards now. There's a couple episodes that I wasn't checking and I need to go backwards and see, but yeah. So until next time, everyone, thank you so much for listening and spending time with us geeking out about science fiction and having fun talking about it. And until next time, as you go through your journeys whether you're going as a full-size human or as a psychic shrinky-dink projection, I want to wish you Godspeed. <laughs> <laughs>